0: Welcome to the London First Baptist Church Podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of April 28th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. We took a break for several weeks as we got ready for Easter. This morning we resume the Gospel of Mark. We'll be chapter 9. we we'll look into God's Word this morning. Mark chapter 9. Just a reminder of where we are in the Gospel So we come to this uh, section of scripture. Before this, in chapter 8, Jesus had been talking about, with his disciples, the need or the call to suffer and be rejected. Now, you remember just a few verses back there in chapter 8. Jesus had asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And Peter, ultimately, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then, Jesus tells them very directly, here's what that means. It means that I'm going to suffer. It means I'm going to be rejected. and It means that the leadership of Israel is going to kill me, but don't worry, I'll be raised on the third day. The disciples just could not grasp the idea of the Messiah being rejected and killed. Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus goes on to say, listen, not only am I going to be killed, but if you want to follow me, take up your own cross. In other words, you will have to be willing to die, and you may die as well. He said, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. In other words, not only am I going to be rejected and die, but you may as well. That's what it means to follow me. So as we come to Mark chapter 9, this has been going on. In fact, the events of chapter 9 will take place about one week after all these things we saw in chapter 8. And you can imagine, I think, probably for the previous week, the disciples had been trying to get their minds to grasp this idea that what it means to follow the Messiah, God's anointed one, that it might mean suffering and death. And they just couldn't bring themselves to do this. It confused them, it disillusioned them, it uh, challenged them. They just didn't know what to make about this. Everything, and I mean everything they had ever been taught, everything they had ever known about Messiah, had told them that that meant victory. It meant triumph. It meant freedom. It did not mean rejection and suffering and death. And so this challenged everything they'd ever been taught. And they just couldn't bring their minds to grasp this. It didn't settle into their hearts. You know, by the way, as we get into this passage, it's a reminder to us as we look at chapter 8 and chapter 9 that there are going to be, as we walk through the Christian life, there are going to be more times than we can count where things happen. Difficult stuff takes place. That may challenge our understanding of who God is. Sometimes it's a simple tragedy. Sometimes it is the day in, day out grind of life. But much like the disciples, it's possible for us to know God and yet sometimes miss the activity of God and miss the truth of what He is sometimes saying. Truth is, we're probably much like the disciples. We Really, if we, don't, if we, we may not say it out loud, but we kind of tend to think that if we follow God, if we're faithful, that God will reward us with victory and triumph all the time. I mean, that's sometimes the unspoken reality of many believers, even today. It sure was in Jesus' day. If we follow God, we are the people of Israel, we are God's people. If we follow the Messiah, that means triumph. It means success. It means victory. Even today, I'll bet you some of us, we wouldn't say it out loud, we wouldn't even know to articulate it this way, but we might think to ourselves that we kind of expect God to reward us if we just go to church enough, if we tithe, if we we expect God to honor the fact that probably we live relatively speaking moral lives. And we expect God to honor that, right? I mean, that's what we expect, I bet you, more often than not. And if something goes wrong, let's say something bad happens in our lives, and we go, Well, I've been faithful, I've gone to church, we've even given money, I've gone on a mission trip, we 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 serve faithfully. Why would God allow this in our lives? That right there is saying something. We expect God to give us victory just because we do some basic stuff. That's what the disciples thought. And when Jesus challenges them with this idea that to follow him means suffering and rejection and even perhaps death, it bothered them a great deal. Do most of us know the children's church song, Jesus loves me. I'll bet bet you here, if I ask you to sing, Jesus loves me, i bet you most of you could do that. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. All right, we kind of know the words. And the words of that song are true. And they're profound. But let me suggest something to you. It's also simple. Now, simple is not necessarily bad, but we know as we mature and grow in our faith that the fact Jesus loves me, this I know, does not mean that I get everything I want. Sometimes the fact that Jesus loves me means I might walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes the fact that Jesus loves me means I will endure great pain. If you remember in John chapter 12, Jesus' friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus was was sick to the point of death. And Jesus, it says when he gets word of what's happened to Lazarus, that he delays for four days. And what's interesting, if you go back and read that passage, it says that Jesus delayed because he loved them. That's a little counterintuitive, isn't it? You hear someone sick, What do you do? You drop everything and you go because you love them. Jesus delayed because he loved them. He didn't go. He waited for four days because he loved them. And what happened because of that delay? Lazarus died. Know what that means? It means Lazarus died because Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now that just goes Now, we know the rest of that story, don't we? We know that that death was followed by Jesus showing up and after four days in that tomb, him raising Lazarus to life. Now, that wouldn't have happened. Imagine what would have been missed if Jesus had showed up early. Sometimes the fact that God loves us means that we go through the deaths, that we go through the rejection, that we go through the suffering. For the disciples, they had not put those two things together. They had missed all those patterns. Remember the last three weeks before Easter? We saw these patterns in the Old Testament of what the Messiah would be like, that he would be rejected, that he would... Oh, Philistines coming on. (laughs) That went away. All right. That he would be rejected, that he would suffer. We saw that in the life of Joseph. We saw that in the life of Abraham and Isaac. We saw it in Ezekiel that to follow God, the pattern of the Old Testament, that, with, that God's anointed often were rejected. They often were, uh, were suffering. That often were even going through a type of a death, and then you would see them resurrected, and in a matter of speaking, symbolically. You saw all that throughout all the scriptures. In fact, every one of the prophets at one point is rejected by the people of Israel. It was the pattern all throughout scripture, all throughout God's history with his people. And yet the disciples never, the the Jews of Jesus' day never understood that sometimes being God's people means suffering. Let's read Mark chapter 9. All this feeds into this. Mark chapter 9. Jesus is saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took, them, took with him Peter and James and John and brought, him, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed overshadowed them, and a a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another What rising from the dead meant? They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. You may have heard this weekend a big movie came out. Some of you may have known that. Probably the most anticipated movie of the last several years. Avengers. Some of you care. Some of you could not care less. It was a big deal. It is a big deal. They're saying this movie will probably make upwards of $1 billion in the first week. I contributed a small sum this weekend. Now, thing about movies is, especially the big ones, months or weeks before those movies come out, they have something called a teaser trailer. Now, Y'all know what a movie trailer is, right? What's the point of a movie trailer? It's to give you a hint, a tease as to what is coming. It's going to make you want to see it even more. That's the idea. Well, we have come out of this whole discussion that Jesus, Jesus has had with his disciples about suffering and death and hardship and rejection. And they're confused and they don't know quite what all this means. And so Jesus is going to give them a trailer. He's going to give them a teaser. Yes, this is what might come in the next future, but I want you to know what's coming way out there. I have in the, uh, I don't usually do this, but I have a pun in the sermon title this morning. It says a sneak peek. And you might be thinking to yourselves, well, peek is not spelled P-E-A-K when you're talking about peeking into something. But this took place on a mountain, all right? Peak, P-E-A-K, it's a sneak peek. I know it's a bad joke. Jesus is giving them a sneak peek. At least he's giving Peter, James, and John this morning a sneak peek as to his glory. It's almost as if he's saying, listen, I know I've told you some very difficult things and some things that are hard to understand and some things that in the coming months you're going to look at and go, wow, I don't get it. And I've been talking to you about suffering and dying and rejection. But I want you to know something, Jesus says, or as if if he's saying this, I want to give you a sneak peek as to the end of the story. I want to give you a trailer. I want to give you a glimpse as to what is on the way. And so Jesus takes them to the top of an unnamed mountain. It's probably not too far from Caesarea Philippi. Some believe this is probably a mountain called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in that particular area on the northern part of Israel. It's the source of the Jordan River. So perhaps it's, the, perhaps it's Mount Hermon. Perhaps it's, it's somewhere else. And as, he, as all this happens... As he takes Peter and James and John up to the top of this mountain, it says that he was transfigured before them. It's the word we get the word metamorphosis from. It's a transformation. It's a complete change. And so here's what's going on. He's been talking about suffering and dying and rejection and resurrection, and they're just confused and they're depressed and they don't know what's going on. And so he takes these three men to the top of this mountain, and he is before them transformed. And what we get a glimpse of is Jesus in His heavenly glory. And what He looks like when He's not hanging out with us people. I want you to, uh, if you want to turn there, you can. I want to read for you from Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And this is a more complete description of what the resurrected Christ looks like right now revelation chapter one john writes i turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned i saw seven golden lampstands in the middle of the lampstands i saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash his head and his hair were white like white wool like snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man and he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of hell. The same account of Mark chapter 9, the transfiguration, takes place in Matthew chapter 17. And in Matthew chapter 17, Matthew adds the detail that in the transfiguration, not only was he, his clothing transformed, but that Jesus' face shone out like the sun. What Peter and James and John saw that night on this mountain was what John saw in Revelation chapter 1. And it floored them. Now again, these guys have been thinking for a week, what is going on about suffering and rejection? We think Messiah, we think ultimate victory. This doesn't sound like that. And so Jesus takes them up on the top and says, here is who I am, and He has changed before them. If nothing else happens this morning, If you don't hear a word that I say after this, walk away knowing this, that the one to whom Thomas said, my Lord and my God, that we talked about last week, this Jesus is our Jesus. Yes, he was, as the the scripture describes him when he was on this earth, nothing remarkable to look at. There was nothing about Jesus that necessarily stood out physically while he was walking on earth. Yes, he allowed himself to be killed, to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be beaten, to be spat upon. Yes, he hung out with the poor people and the rural folks and the ones that this world said were unimportant. This Jesus right here in Mark chapter 9, this is the real Jesus today. When we are going through the rejection and the suffering, we were enduring the hardships of this life, when we are serving our Lord and having a hard time understanding why bad things happen to us. Look at this Jesus. Remember this one. Remember the one who will one day ultimately conquer all of sin and evil and will resurrect those of us who have died with Him. This is our God song came out it's been probably close to 20 years now i can only imagine surrounded by your glory what will my heart feel will i dance for you jesus or in awe of you be still will i stand in your presence or to my knees will i fall will i sing hallelujah will i be able to speak at all i can only imagine I don't know. I think it's interesting that both John and chapter 1 of Revelation, he sees this Messiah. Understand, John had seen Jesus in life. And when John sees that same Jesus in his heavenly glory, he says, I'm like a dead man. He just falls down. He's not moving. Peter and James and John, it says here in chapter 9, that they are terrified. They don't know what to do. They've got this vision of Jesus in front of them and they don't have any clue as to how to handle this. There's nothing in their experience that's prepared them for this type of heavenly picture of Jesus. Uh, Peter, not knowing what to say. Now, if you're like me, you've probably have been told, if you don't know what to say, say nothing, right? Uh, Peter, doesn't buy, Peter doesn't go by that. Peter doesn't know what to say, so he just comes up with something. Now, more often than not, Peter's like us. When you do say something, when you're not supposed to say anything, it's the wrong thing. So that's what Peter does. But the bottom line is this, they don't know how to handle it. They see this vision, they see Jesus, they see Moses and Elijah. And by the way, while we don't have time to get too much into that this morning, seeing those two people in particular, Moses and Elijah, would have given the disciples reason to believe that this means the end of the world. (laughs) For them, it was an apocalyptic type thing. Well, this means it's all about to end. We're here. we finished. That's what it would have been for them. And so Peter sees all this. And I know people are kind of hard on Peter here because he says, and I just was too, he says something stupid. He says, well, let's just build three tabernacles right here and just stay here. Because Peter's going, how is it going to get any better than this? Now, again, I... It's amazing how many... I was reading some commentaries this week. It's amazing. Peter just gets hammered here. I mean, stupid Peter. Yeah, I get it. But part of me is kind of going, wait a minute here. He's got this vision of heaven. He's got this picture of of Jesus in all his glory. Who wouldn't want to hang out there? Is that so hard to understand? I mean, David says in, in the Psalms, he says, one thing I have desired the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David says, I can't think of any place better to be than face to face with God. Peter sees this and goes, well, yeah, let's stay here. So yeah, it probably wasn't the best thing to say. It wasn't the right thing to say. In fact, God just kind of ignores it. (laughs) It's Like, yeah, whatever. I think Peter just has a desire to be in the presence of the glorified Christ. The one thing you'll see here is that um, Peter's request is never even you know never even answered. The cloud comes in after that. And by the way, the cloud is a is a the understanding there is that means God the Father showed up. Whenever you see that cloud like that, that means that's God the Father showing up. If you go back to Israel when they are at Mount Sinai, Moses has brought them out of Egypt and they're at they're, on, they're at the foot of the mountain, and Moses is up on top of the mountain. And you remember the description in Exodus is that the mountain was covered with a great cloud. It thundered. It was the presence of God the Father. That's what's going on here. So they're in God's presence in this vision of heaven. God just ignores Peter's babbling and says, This is my son. He says, Listen to him. Pay attention. Now, why, why that of all things? Because they're having a hard time listening right now. They're hearing what Jesus has been saying, and they're having a hard time following that. Some of them perhaps have even begun to question whether or not Jesus has a right understanding of his own role. They're going, wait a minute. Messiah doesn't mean suffering. It means kicking out the Romans. Messiah doesn't mean death. It means life. Messiah doesn't mean suffering, it means victory. And then God shows up and says, That's my son. Let me paraphrase a little bit. Shut up and pay attention. (laughs) Listen to him. We just celebrated last week the resurrection. The resurrection Easter morning, obviously that holds great, great sway. We look at that. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that reminds us of the power of God. But one of the things about the resurrection that makes it even more powerful is this. Again, you don't have a resurrection unless there is first a death. The light of the resurrection is made all the more bright when you've gone through the darkness of the Friday when you've experienced the flogging and the suffering and the rejection and the mocking the resurrection is all the more powerful now you and I we're on the same path as our Messiah as our as our Savior doesn't mean that we're going to die a death that is that horrible doesn't mean that our death will redeem anybody as his did but it does mean that living a life that brings honor to God the way Christ did might mean suffering, and it might mean at the end, and it will, end, it will mean at the end, resurrection. We're on the same path that Christ was on. We have on our logo, you see it up here on the screen, the first part of this little motto up here says, Together for Christ. The for Christ part means that we are living, dying, celebrating, sacrificing on behalf, not ourselves, but on Jesus' behalf. We live on His behalf. It means we're just a few weeks away from, uh, from graduation ceremonies. There's going, there's going to be graduation ceremonies at college here in just a couple weeks. Uh, a couple weeks after that, there will be some high school graduation ceremonies. We have uh, quite a few seniors, high school seniors this year here at London, First Baptist. What it does mean is what together for Christ means, what the scripture means, what Mark chapter 8 means this. It means that the expectations on you young people who are graduating this year. It means the expectation is that we have, that hopefully your parents have, but for sure that what God has is that it means the expectation of your life is that it will be lived not for yourself, but for him. It means that the majors you choose, it means that the careers you choose, it means that the money you make, that the family you will raise will be done not for your own sake, but for the sake of Christ. It means that we as parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, it means that you as, as workers and employers and employees, that you work your job not for your own sake, but for the sake of Christ. That means the way you handle your work, It means the way you handle your finances. It means the decisions you make about how to treat that person or that person. It means that the, the integrity of the deals that you do, how you handle your taxes, yes, all that stuff is done not for your own benefit, but for the sake of Christ. Everything that we do is for His sake. So I do it in such a way as if people were to look at it they would go, wow, that makes God look good. That's the expectation of our lives. That's the expectation Christ had of his disciples. It's the expectation that I believe God has for us this morning. We live for Christ. Now, let's be honest, that gets hard sometimes because the reality of life is difficult. That's why we need a Mark chapter 9. It's why we need to, when every once in a while, when the grind of life is difficult, when I'm not sure what decisions to make, when I'm not sure how to handle this circumstance, I do it, I look first, I look at the resurrected, glorified King of Kings. And I go, that's who I'm living for. That's what I need. And now that helps me make better decisions today. We need to focus ourselves from time to time on the glorified Christ. We are a people that, quite frankly, seek to be in awe of something. I, I think one of the attractions of a movie like this weekend, this big Avengers movie is, and having seen that, I'll tell you, there are some scenes in it that you go, wow. You know what, we are a people. We are a race of people that like to be wowed. Whether it be in entertainment. Maybe what wows us is to go out into nature and see some majestic mountain or some great ocean vista. Or we are a people who seek to be wild. We have an inner need to be a witness to grandeur to be a witness to magnificence. Why did God wire that into us? Because we are a people created to worship Him. And as great as the Colorado peaks might be, as fantastic as a Niagara Falls might be, or a Grand Canyon might be, as majestic as an ocean might be, all of those things pale in comparison to the one who actually made them. And you and I, without even realizing it, find ourselves looking for and seeking out things to worship. And all the time, we have one before us who looks like this. And we need to stop letting pale substitutes, pale imitations, be what we worship. As impressive as the Rocky Mountains are, they will not sustain you through life's toils and suffering. This one will. This whole thing they see, Jesus puts in front of them. Of course, you, you see something awesome. You see something majestic. You want to talk about it, right? Did you see... Have you ever seen anything like that? We, we see those things. We finally get a chance to witness to them, and we want to, to talk about them. So they do. God says, you listen to him, and they begin to talk about what they have seen and what they have heard. And what we get a glimpse of is that even with this glimpse of Christ, they still don't understand what is going on here. They think Messiah and suffering are mutually exclusive. They think being God's people and being obedient means nothing bad will ever happen. And what Christ is telling them is in Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9 is that the two things can't be separated. In fact, suffering and death always come before resurrection and glory. I hope I don't butcher the story up too much, Bob. We were meeting Thursday morning and he spoke of a friend of his I think back in Texas that had had at some point back years ago both of his legs amputated. I said like you know like the knees he goes, no like legs completely amputated. And Bob made the comment this guy will tell you that there was an incredible thing that's happened. And I went what do you mean? Because quite frankly I was whining because I might have to have Foot surgery. I didn't like that. I was, I was whining a bit. I don't know if Bob told that story to shut me up or what, but said so this guy had, was in the hospital <clears throat> doing reading his Bible. Nurse came in. What are you doing? I think he said she was from India. So he tells her. So he's up talking to talking to her through the scripture. He's he's studying. The next day, she brings in seven more. And he has a Bible study with eight nurses there in his room. As I understand it, they all came to faith in Christ. All of them were Hindu. Now, guess, guess what? I can't, I'm, can't, I can't speak for this guy, but I'm guessing this. Every time he looks down and sees his legs missing, you know what he sees? Eight people coming to Christ. There will be a day, the disciples don't know it yet. There will be a day when the idea of taking up their cross won't simply mean horrific death. But they'll see the cross as the agent of victory and triumph. That's why you and I wear it as jewelry or put pictures of it in our homes or in our churches. The transfiguration is giving us a preview. It's a teaser. The yes, we will have lives that will probably have great tragedy and great difficulty and even suffering for the cause of Christ if we are obedient to Him. But it also means that those things will one day not be seen as horrific in and of themselves, but they will be seen as the things that saved. It's a trailer. It's a teaser. Here's what is to come. If you're going through one of these things this morning, I'm not going to, I can't make it seem easier than it is. It, it's hard to endure suffering and rejection for the cause of Christ. It's difficult to go through the grind of life. I'm not saying it's anything other than that. But I want us to see this morning that if the transfiguration, I want us to see this morning the God whom we serve, who will take those things and redeem them and turn them into signs of victory, and His great love.